You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec slash lovealways. This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to The Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. In this episode, Bishop Curry is talking with Brian Stevenson, author, lawyer, and founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, a human rights organization in Montgomery, Alabama, about what it means to remember, reorient, and renew an active faith in Jesus and his way of love. I believe that collectively we all have to spend more time with the poor and the excluded, the neglected, the marginalized, the incarcerated, uh, the hungry, the homeless, the disabled. Because in proximity with these communities, we hear things we won't otherwise hear. We see things we won't otherwise see. And what we hear and see gives us insight and knowledge and capacity. So I can only be an effective advocate for someone. I can only defend the value of their life if I understand that life. This three-part conversation was originally aired as part of the Diocese of the Central Gulf Coast Jubilee Revival, Just Mercy, Just Jesus. Bishop Curry and Mr. Stevenson reflected on three passages of scripture and have included the readings from that broadcast as part of this episode. You'll hear those voices at the top of each segment. Here is part one of the conversation. Remember, a reflection on Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. The gospel of the Lord. It's a joy to be with you, Brother Stevenson. It really is. Well, it's my privilege and honor to be with you, Bishop. Well, folk have just heard um, th that reading from Matthew 16, where Jesus has that conversation with Peter and the other disciples, and they were sort of doing a poll. We've had a lot of polls in the last few months, and um, apparently they were taking a poll on Jesus' popularity, how much he was resonating, communicating with folk. And uh, Jesus starts out by saying, well, well, who do folks say that I am? And so they give all these various answers. And then he zeroes in, which is what he was really getting at. Well, who do you say I am, brother? Who do, who do you say I am? And uh, the Bishop, uh, Bishop Kendrick uh, suggested one question might be for us, who do you say Jesus is for you? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, Jesus is light in the darkness. Um, he is truth and the way. Um, I, I, Jesus for me is salvation and redemption, a way to cope with the burden of sin and the burden of regret and remorse. This is a complicated world. We run into each other a lot. You can be overwhelmed by failure. You can be overwhelmed by the things that don't go the way you want them to go, and you can get trapped by that. Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus and the Gospels represent 
a way out of the trap, a way to freedom, a way to love. And it's interesting. I, I, I believe Jesus is love. I believe there are very real and practical consequences to being a believer for me. My great-grandparents were enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia, and I've been thinking about this a lot. They were people of faith, and when emancipation came, they rejected the instinct for revenge and retaliation against those that had enslaved them, who had brutalized and abused them. And they actually embraced love and forgiveness, a, a way forward in community. I do not think that would have been possible without the love of Jesus in their hearts, without the gospel's to provide another way, a kind of truth about what makes you whole and human. And what makes you whole and human is to not get trapped and confined and constrained by hatred and animosity, to not do to those uh, what people have done to you. And I just think that narrative of uh, truth, of life, of light, of love, really defines uh, Christ for me and the gospels for me. How do you, how do you, I mean, if it's not too personal, how do you as an individual, because you, I mean, you have a remarkable life story. Um, uh, you just gave us a bit of it. Um, and, and you're a busy guy and you're like the rest of us. You're kind of, I mean, I sometimes describe myself as feeling like a caged tiger during this pandemic. I mean, I can't get out. I'm kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and you're sort of in that same situation in many respects, and yet you've got to keep doing your work. You've got, and you're living with the same humdrum of boredom, if you will, the same thing every day. Um, that that the rest of us are. How do you keep that light and that love of Jesus in your? You know, like that song says, "I got the love of Jesus down in my heart, down in my." Yeah. How do you keep it down in your heart? How do you do that? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I, I think, for me. Uh, kindness and compassion is exciting. It's energizing. It's mm. um, uh, it's affirming. And so I look for ways to be kind and compassionate. I, I mean, I really do think that those scriptures that Jesus gave us, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. We say them, but we don't appreciate how radical that is. It's a radical concept to love yes. your enemy, to love your neighbor. And for me, I, I, I've tried to embrace it again. I grew up in the segregation. Uh, I grew up excluded and marginalized. I had to start my education in a colored school because they didn't let black children go to the public schools in our community. Uh, there were no high schools for black kids in my county when my dad was a teenager, so he couldn't go to high school. And when integration came, it was tempting in that moment to not want to treat these kids who had excluded us uh, the way we wanted to be treated, to carry the weight of that hurt, that injury of segregation, of rejection. And I, I remember being in church on Sundays and, them, and reciting these scriptures, and it just reinforced for me how we couldn't do that, that, that how there had to be some kindness and compassion, even against those mm -hmm. who had not been kind and compassionate. And I think in the midst of this pandemic, when there's so much to worry about, when there's so much that overwhelms us, it's been really important for me and really helpful for me to look for opportunities to just be kind, to be yeah. compassionate to the people I can't see, to send them a note, to the people I can't be with, to show yeah. my thinking of them. And that act of kindness and compassion has really been uh, affirming for me. And that has, that has actually caused me to revisit those gospels, those scriptures that talk about uh, the power of transformative love, but it does help my day to day. It absolutely does. I think it, it really makes does. it possible, you know, to imagine that we're still connected, that we're still in community, even as we are socially distant, even as we are isolated. Yeah. Does it make you a better lawyer? I, I, I it does. That's, that's a terrible no, question, but, it, no, no, but no. I'm curious. It's a, it's a great question. I've always believed that to be effective an attorney, you have to be proximate. You have to get close to the people you represent. You have to find ways to go where people are. You can't say, this is my office, this is my space. You have to come here and I will yeah. represent you. You have to go where people are. And um, and and, I, and that's why I, I, I believe that collectively, we all have to spend more time with the poor and the excluded, the neglected, the marginalized, the incarcerated, uh, the hungry, the homeless, the disabled. 
Because in proximity with these communities, we hear things we won't otherwise hear. We see things we won't otherwise see. And what we hear and see gives us insight and knowledge and capacity. So I can only be an effective advocate for someone. I can only defend the value of their life if I understand that life, if I've had a chance to experience what that life represents. And uh, that calling uh, for proximity of being close, which comes right out of the Gospels, you know, all of those great songs near the cross, at the cross. We're invited to be in that space, even though it's painful and challenging, but because we know we will learn and see things, we'll experience redemption there. And for me, that is part of the way uh, I try to be an advocate. I want to take on the burdens of my clients. I want to be their brother and sister, not just their lawyer. I want to be an advocate, but I also want to be a friend. I want to be in struggle with them. Uh, I want uh, their tears to, to affect my heart. I want their joy to affect my heart. And that can be challenging, but it can also be so affirming. And, um, mm. I, and, and that for me does make me, I think, a better lawyer because I'm not advocating for myself. I'm not advocating for someone I don't have much regard for. I'm advocating, advocating for my brothers and my sisters, my yes. friends, people I love and care about. And when you advocate for those folks, uh, you just engage in a different way. It matters in a different way. And that's the way I think Christ cares for us. You know, if, there, if it was disconnected, uh, there'd be this willingness to let some people go. Uh, the, those people who really messed up would be some willingness to say, well, we're not going to worry about them. We're not. But that's not what I read in the Gospels. I think mm. we are all called to repent. I don't believe I've met a lot of people who've been condemned, who've done some terrible things, but I've never met anybody about whom I could say, this person's life is beyond hope, beyond redemption, beyond salvation, beyond restoration. And I'm persuaded based on the Gospels that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And that means yes. that there are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. And I don't think we get to that conclusion if we're not practicing kindness and compassion and building an understanding of who we are as people of faith. You just described Christmas. Yeah. God didn't stay away. He came near. He came yeah. among us to be with us, one of us. Yeah. You just described Christmas. Uh, yeah. Wow. I've never thought about it that way, but that's a beautiful way uh, to conceptualize it. And it's interesting because I think this is a challenging Christmas, given where we are in the world. This has been such a difficult year. Yeah. Um, but it's sometimes in difficulty that we begin to appreciate what it means to be um, people of faith. Um, you know, I love that scripture in Second Corinthians, and I I cite it frequently because there are times when I feel like there are thorns in my side because we're dealing with so many challenges. We've had this spate of executions in the United States over the last seven months, and it's heartbreaking to me to be with people whose humanity and dignity I can touch and feel knowing that the government is going to execute them when there's still so much life and love. Uh, and it's challenging to be in those places, and I've been with clients in that situation. And at times it feels overwhelming, but that's when I think about uh, that scripture in, in the 12th chapter of Second Corinthians, where Paul talks about being stressed and overwhelmed. And he's asking uh, God to take the thorn from his side. And, and the scripture comes back, no, no, no. Uh, and, 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 and the Lord says, my grace is sufficient. Mm -hmm. And uh, my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul understands something he didn't understand before, which is that he shouldn't be ashamed of his pain and suffering. He can actually take mm -hmm. pride in the challenges. He can take pride mm -hmm. in the difficulties that we have to encounter when we are proximate with the poor and the excluded. When we stand next to the condemned, we can actually take some pride in the pain of that space because we know that God's grace is sufficient. And then the scripture ends, uh, when I am weak, I am strong. There have been times when I felt yes. weak during this pandemic, but I do feel the strength of the Lord lifting us up to know that there is going to be another side to this. And, and that has sustained me in my work. And it, I, I think it's given me sometimes the courage I wouldn't otherwise have to do the things that I think have to be done. I gotta tell you, and this may sound off the wall, but literally on uh, Facebook this morning, somebody posted uh, this video of this like two-year-old child dancing to good golly miss molly and she was just <laughs> dancing and just dancing and i remember I, was, I sat there and watched it 
and I actually could feel something inside of me. I mean, it was coming from her. Her joy was connecting to mine. That's what Paul grasped. My grace is all you need. Yes, yes. Joy is what folk used to call amazing grace. Amazing grace, Mm. yes, sir. Joy is powerful. Mm. It's incredibly powerful. And I I love to see, uh, you know, children dance. I love to see uh, infants smile. I love to see toddlers experience the joy of life, unconstrained and unfiltered by all of these things that get in the way as we get older. Because there's something true about that expression of joy, that expression of love. That's what's so beautiful about children and and why, uh, you know, even in our work, we've felt the need to kind of push against the way in which sometimes we demonize some children. You know, I've been representing a lot of kids who are prosecuted as adults, and we've had this era where some people were saying that some children aren't children. They're super predators, and they've used these really uh, horrific labels. Um, But I go into jails and prisons, and even there, see young children finding their ways to joy, finding their ways to redemption. And um, I love those videos too. When I see young kids experiencing the joy of life like that, I have to watch as well. It's so beautiful and and compelling. That's how my, believe, believe it or not, this morning, my morning devotion, I thought I had finished it. And then I just was fishing around and saw this video of this kid dancing. And I said, well, glory, hallelujah. There it is. <laughs> there it is. That was a thank you, Jesus moment if I ever had one. <laughs> absolutely. I absolutely can identify with that. Yeah. Well, my brother, you just gave us a Christmas blessing uh, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Beautiful. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Take a moment and reflect. When the world is falling apart around you, what piece of scripture or song carries you through the valley, the storm? Let's rejoin Bishop Curry and Mr. Stevenson for part two of their conversation, Reorient, as they reflect on Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Well, my brother folk have just heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, which starts out with, um, this lawyer, uh, oh, sorry, by the way, there's a lawyer, uh, this <laughs> lawyer coming to Jesus, <laughs> doing what lawyers do, asking questions, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and, you know, whether he was sincerely asking or whether this was a trap, it's even the scripture is, it's not absolutely clear, and it probably was mixed motives anyway. Uh, and in spite of himself, he learned something. And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? You're the lawyer. And he said, well, you know, Moses said you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that that's good. You do that, brother, and you will live. Now, I wonder if Jesus thought the conversation was over then. Said, okay, brother, you got the message. But the lawyer being a lawyer said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we, um, can we define more precisely 
uh, what we mean by neighbor. I understand I need to love God. I, I get that. But and I agree. I, I wouldn't disagree with Moses. But neighbor, could we define neighbor? Is 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 neighbor basically, you know, my family, my friends, um, and those who agree with me politically, and um, you know, who have and and Jesus did not fall for the trap. <laughs> he did not answer the question on its terms. He said, Well, let me tell you a story, brother. <laughs> and he said, you know, this guy went down the road and he got beaten up and he was all messed up. And um, a couple other folk, re religious folk. Uh, went by and people from his own tribe, in fact, they, for whatever reason, uh, Dr. King once said, he said, look, it was dangerous on that road. Um, and so they had good reason to keep on walking. Like that song, Isaac Hayes had that song, walk on by, just walk <laughs> on by. And, and, and they walked on by. And then this guy who was a Samaritan and the guy who had been beaten up was Jewish. And they were two people who did not get along with each other because actually they were cousins um, and nothing worse than an in-family fight. And so they did not get along with each other, had different worldviews, different political understandings of the world, uh, different understandings of who was going to heaven and who was not going to heaven. Every difference you can think of, ethnic, religious, political, is playing out. And it's the Samaritan that helps the brother. And Jesus says, well, well now, um, who was neighbor? He said, I'm not going to answer your question is, you know, who was neighbor to the guy who was beaten up? And, and the guy, lawyer said, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, well, go and do thou likewise. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's, what in the world does it mean to show mercy? You got a book on just mercy. <laughs> <laughs> what but, does but it you mean? Know you know, I, I love the way you interpret that scripture and you tell that story because in many ways, um, people sometimes ask these questions of what it what it means to be a person of faith. What does it mean to be a believer? And they don't always ask them with the best intentions. Yeah. And uh, I, it reminds me of what we read in, in Micah. You know, the prophet Micah mm -hmm. was navigating some of those same dynamics and People were saying, well, what does God require of us? Does he want our, our firstborn? Does he want offerings? Does he want this? Does he want that? We'll give him the things we have, and maybe that will satisfy what our faith requires. And, uh, and, and the prophet responds, uh, no, my friend, uh, God has told you uh, what is required. And what is required is that we do justice and that we love mercy and that we walk humbly with him. And in many ways, that's a harder thing than just giving the things that we don't need, we don't have to have. And I really believe that you cannot uh, appreciate and show mercy if you are not committed to doing justice. To me, justice and mercy are twins. They're part of the same uh, fruit. And, uh, and the injustice of that man on that road, that dangerous road, hmm. lying there hmm. in pain and anguish to have his fellow tribesmen walk by is part of the reason why the mercy of uh, the distant one, the, the, the cousin, as, yeah. as you frame it, is so powerful. And that is the beauty of mercy. I don't have to know you. I don't have to understand you. I don't have to even trust you or appreciate all the things you've done to be merciful towards you. And that's the concept that I, I hear in the scriptures. A lot of times we, we want credit for being merciful and we give it to the people we think that deserve it. Oh, you know what? This person yeah. helped me, so I'll help them. And aren't I a merciful person? I'm going to do something for them because they did something for me. And Oh, you know, that person is actually pretty good. I like them okay. I'll do something for them. Aren't I a great, merciful person? And I actually don't think it's mercy until we give it to the undeserving, until we give it to the people who haven't done the things for us that we might like them to do, because that's when it actually speaks to the kind of transformative uh, mercy that I think Jesus wanted us all to appreciate. Uh, and it's uh, it's not always easy, that's for certain, but I actually think it's the kind of power uh, that comes in an orientation that understands that doing justice and loving mercy and then walking humbly, not yeah. proudly because of that act of mercy, not because of the things that, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. I've had a lot of 
beautiful moments in my career. I've been able to walk out of jails and prisons with people who've been wrongly convicted. I've been able to uh, see some good outcomes for the people I represent. Uh, but I don't really take pride in that. I take pride in the fact that when I was a young law student, I went to death row and I met a condemned man and heard this man at the end of our visit sing because he was struggling. And what he sang is, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, lift my feet on higher ground. ground. And they pushed him out of that room with the chains on him. And you could hear the chains clang, but you could still hear him singing about higher ground. And when I heard him sing, that's when everything changed for me. That's when I knew I wanted to help condemn people get to higher ground. But more than that, I knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey. And I left that prison and I went back to Harvard Law School and you couldn't get me out of the law school library. I needed to know everything about comedy and federalism and all of this stuff. And uh, if I've had any impact in my career, if I've had any success in my career, it's not because I'm hardworking or smart or anything like that. It's because I got close enough to the condemned to hear him sing about higher ground. And I owe my success, if you want to call it that, I owe my uh, journey uh, to the mercy that was shown to me by a condemned person who was struggling and suffering, but had the heart to express his desire to get to higher ground. That's the beauty of God's mercy. It will lift you up in places you don't expect. Wow. Oh. It's like that song, Love Lifted Me, Love Lifted Me, when oh. nothing else would help. Love yes. Lifted Me. I love wow. it. Uh, I love it. Oh. The music of the church is so powerful. You know, those songs are so transformative. I used to play for, I grew up as a church musician. I used to play for uh-huh. testimonial services when I was real small. I wouldn't, I don't think they trusted me to actually play for the actual services. They said, well, you can yeah, play right. for testimonial services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the warm up, the pre, the, the warm up. Yeah, exactly. The pregame, I know. Yeah, the pregame, that's right. Uh, you know, and, uh, and it was tough because people would come in, they'd start saying you have to find a key and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, I was so blessed by that experience because people would sometimes give their testimonies and their testimonies in my community would sometimes be heartbreaking. They would have lost children. They had food insecurity. Somebody didn't come home. They had suffered. They had lost a job and they would give these testimonies that would sometimes be hard to hear. But at the end of it, they would stand up and they'd start singing and they'd yes. sing, take nothing from my journey now. Yeah. Uh, sing, I yes. don't always tired. And I that heard. kind of music, those kinds of words in the, in the context of that kind of anguish and suffering, teach us the way mercy and grace can revive. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I've long embraced that. It has sustained me in the work that I do. Wow. You know, one of the, the, the sort of, I don't want to call it tragedies, but one of the real hardships or uh, signs of the hardship in pandemic has been the reality that singing, um, just because of the biological act, actually spreads the the germ, the virus, if you will. And and so we've had to kind of dial back in church. Um, Singing. Um, And yet it dawned on me, well, if you're the only one around, if there's nobody else in the room, go on and sing your song. I mean, go on and sing your song, you know? Okay, if Bishop, it's in the shower, I, sing it. I probably shouldn't admit this, but because I've been home, I've been in my own house in Montgomery, Alabama, every night for the last eight and a half months. Uh, that's not something I've had the experience of doing in the last 20-some years. And, uh, and I have to say, <clears throat> I have a piano. I have sung uh-huh. more in these last eight months than I think I have sung in the last. And I do think you're right. We have to find our voice when there's chaos and despair and anxiety around us. I mean, it, you, you know this, and, 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 and certainly in the church I grew up in, it was in the moments of most intense anxiety and concern and anguish yeah. that people would resort to song. It wasn't yeah. an accident that when Dr. King and all of those committed activists and advocates were going into the space where they knew they were going to get bloodied bloodied and battered and beaten, they'd start singing, we shall overcome. It was the word, it was the lyric, it was the melody. I've been in places where I felt overwhelmed and wanted to turn around. And then I remembered the song, uh, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn turn me around. around." And uh, and it it is uh, one of God's gifts that we have the gift 
of song, the gift of a music, the gift of a lyric that can uplift, that can empower us to do yeah. these things that might not otherwise be done. I have joked with my staff, but it's really true. I, I said, there are times I can write sermons. I mean, it used to be on airplanes. Um, yeah. And I assume one day again that will happen, but on long flights and put my earphones on and, and my playlist. And 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 depending on the it, they're like certain, I can put on Aretha that album that live uh, Amazing oh. Grace that Aretha oh did God. back in the in the seventies. Oh if I put that on, sermons will pour out. I don't I know. You. All I know it is like something goes deep, and some of it's my grandmother. Some I know yeah. that's some of it, yeah. but it yeah. goes deep down. There's something yes. about the song, something yes. about the music that goes yeah. deep in the soul that that I don't know, it, it moves beyond cognition to some deeper level and yeah. pulls stuff out. Absolutely. Oh. I, I so identify with that. I, I bought that album when I was a young kid and I think, I, I don't think there's an album I've listened to more yep. than that album uh, because yep. it is a whole narrative about, uh, about how we navigate uh, challenge, right? And, yes. and she sings, one of those songs she sings is I'm Climbing, up the mm. uh, hot, the rough side of the mountain, all my way home, yes. Yes. climbing higher mountains. We actually use that in our museum uh, mm -hmm. to kind of express the struggle. And then there are those songs, uh, you know, "Never Grow Old." That that was the one that I would listen to. There is a land where oh, we really? grow old, and because I have been nurtured by a generation of people who have passed on, it's important for me to believe. Uh, that that land is a place where they still exhibit, exist and, and they are watching. Yes. And there was something powerful about that in, in that recording uh, that wow. just kind of understood that we are part of a larger community of people. And, and, and I feel that constantly. Mm -hmm. We opened our memorial in Montgomery um, in 2018, dedicated to thousands of victims of lynchings. I, I told some people about this, you know, I was so worried about making everything happen the right way. And I was worried about uh -huh. the weather because I knew if it started raining, it would make it complicated because it was outdoors and we had good oh, weather. That's right. of the dedication, <clears throat> it was very gray and overcast. We had hundreds of people come into the space and Sweet Honey and the Rock were going to sing and B.B. Wannans uh -huh. were sing. I knew that music was going to be really important. And we got all in there. And just as we were starting the ceremony, it started pouring down rain. And there was a there's a there's a, a kind of a roof inside the memorial where we were standing. So we weren't getting wet, but you could hear this rain. And I was like, oh, Lord, this is so not what I wanted. And uh, we finished the singing. Somebody prayed and I was supposed to speak. And I was getting up to speak. And all of a sudden, that rain hitting the rooftop became something completely different. It was transformative. Oh. Oh. And it no longer sounded like rain in that space. But in that moment, it sounded like all of those lynching victims, those thousands of Black people whose names have yes. never been spoken, have never been acknowledged. It sounded like they were shedding tears of joy. And mm. the rain became joy in that space. And it created joy for me. It created peace for me. It created mm. understanding for me. It created hope for me. And that's what music and mercy can do. It can create yes. a, a new relationship to the things that other people think are threats and menace. You, you see them differently. You experience them differently. Yes. And uh, I love that about faith and what it can do. I love that about mercy and what it can do. You have just conjured up again for me. You did this for Christmas <laughs> in the last segment. Do you know... That um, on the cross, most of the seven last, not most of them, but the set, a lot of the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, he's quoting Psalms. Yeah. And we often forget, you know, Father, into thy hands, um, I commend my spirit. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? I, I thirst. Um, uh, th those are, he's quoting Psalms that he yeah. would have, that were like deep in him. It's kind of like yes. the Lord's prayer with us. I prayed with yeah. folk who've had Alzheimer's and they don't remember yeah. even who they are, but you start yeah. praying the Lord's prayer and they'll join yeah. you because it yeah. goes deep, deep. That's what's going on. But the thing about the Psalms was in ancient Israel, you didn't recite them. You sang them. Yeah. yeah. Jesus was singing yeah. on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's that's singing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so powerful. Uh, Why I was drawn to music as a young child is that I would be in spaces where you would hear people making sounds that express things that ordinary words couldn't express. Yes. You know, yes. Even, even the, the, the groan and the moan and the way in which people would mm. inhabit the notes of this music had such power. We have an exhibit, um, it's Mahalia Jackson, and she uh-huh. was just an extraordinary gift. She she had a way of tapping in to all of those things. And when she was on uh, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and she started singing "How I Got Over." She was taking oh, yeah. it to something so deep and so rich and yeah. so powerful uh, that you couldn't shake it. And uh, I was actually just watching on YouTube a couple of weeks ago, and I found that just sent me to this video of her, and she was actually performing at the Newport Jazz Festival. I thought, well, this is very unusual. Oh, and it was oh Louis hey. yeah, with Louis Armstrong's 70th birthday, and she oh. was there. To perform, and she looked really out of place because she wasn't changing her dress, she wasn't changing her appearance, just because it was a jazz festival in New England with a mostly white audience. I'm gonna she say she looked like a church lady. <laughs> she looked like a church lady, and she brought her yeah. church lady musician to play for her. She didn't need any of those no. jazz musicians, and she <laughs> talked about her love of Louis Armstrong, and then she started singing, and she started singing "Just a Closer Walk with Me." And she was there and you could tell she started to feel it. And after the first verse, she was no longer singing to the people in that festival. She started singing to some other community of people that couldn't be seen or heard. And she actually moved away from the mic. So you couldn't hear, but you could see her singing. That's how caught up she was in the spirit of that song, the spirit of that expression. And when you're surrounded by that, it just gives you this orientation that you can do the hard things. You can stand even when people say, sit down. You can speak even when people say, be quiet. I love the power uh, of, the, of, the, of the strength in that music uh, to lift us up. Mm. And sings my soul, my savior God to thee. How yeah. great, how great how thou art. art. That's right, that's right. And you know, there, mm. Danny Mahal mm. Hall did this song way back in the day and it was, you know, uh, God giveth more grace as the burdens increase. And yeah. this idea that uh, there is this relationship between our suffering, our struggle, the weight that we have to bear, uh, the challenges that we have to meet, uh, triggering a, a proportionate outpouring of God's grace and mercy. Yes. There's something really comforting about that, uh, that, uh, that the mm-hmm. grace increases as the burden increases. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the the relief comes as the labor uh, gets heavy and and and, and weary. Um, there's a there's a beauty in this mm. story that <laughs> began our conversation about uh, God's understanding of meeting needs in, in in places where needs have to be met and ways that needs have to be met. I rely on that. I depend on that, and that's why it's uh, I, you know I try to live by grace. People, there's so much to worry about. So much to worry about. And sometimes yeah. you just have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to trust in God's grace to, to carry me through. Yeah. Well, you quoted Paul earlier. You were in Second Corinthians. Paul was the one who said, when I am weak, yes. then I am strong. Yeah. 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 Amen. 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 What does it mean for you to show mercy? Think of a time when you saw someone or a group truly being merciful. We'll now hear the final portion of Bishop Curry and Mr. Stevenson's conversation, Renew, reflecting on Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. One of the things I have to say about Romans, which folk have just heard from Romans 5, therefore, uh, since we are justified with God by faith, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to grace. And he goes on and on and on. And he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Um, and he goes on and he just builds up into this incredible moment of declaration. I mean, if you look at the whole chapter of hope, he says, from all this comes hope. It's it's like it hope. I remember in seminary, I was reading that. I, I didn't, Romans baffled me. It really did baffle me for the longest time until it was one of, it was, it was a New Testament professor, probably an intro to New Testament. The uh, professor uh, just said casually, he said, don't read this just as theology. This is biography that is mm. theology. Mm. Paul is telling you his experience of feeling like I'm in a relationship with God for real. This Jesus has shown me the way into a relationship with God for real. And there's some peace in that. And there's some joy in that. And there's hope in that. Because conceivably Paul was on his way to be in prison or was in, under house arrest uh, when Romans was written. That's, we don't know for sure, but it sure looks like that. And yet he's talking about hope. In Romans, he talks about hope against hope. Um, he talks about Abraham and Sarah. Talk about hope. They were like in their 90s and had a baby. He said, now that's hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so the question that I'm going to blame Bishop Kendrick for these questions, and they're good ones. But the question Bishop Kendrick posed for us is, so what is hope? And what yeah. is the relationship between hope and suffering? You know, I've come to believe that hope is an orientation of the spirit. It's a willingness to position yourself sometimes in hopeless places and be a witness. You know, because I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And my life yes. is about trying to advance justice, to do justice. And I've come to believe that injustice prevails where hopelessness Persists. And so if we want justice, we have to have hope. And it can't be based on what we know and what we see. It has to be an orientation of the spirit. Baklev Havel talked about this. He said during the time of Soviet oppression in Eastern Europe, they wanted all kinds of things. They wanted money. They wanted recognition. He said, but the only thing we needed was hope, was a willingness to do the hard thing. And he says that hope isn't a preference for optimism over pessimism. It's not a pie in the sky uh, thing. He says it's an orientation of the spirit. And I really have come to embrace it. I live in Montgomery, Alabama, and it's impossible uh, to, to uh, do my work without thinking about the generation of people who came before me. And black people in this community in the 1950s uh, had this hope that they were gonna end a century of racial segregation in public accommodations on buses. And it was irrational for them to believe right. that they could boycott the buses and that that would end segregation. There was no support, there was no precedent. And yet they had this hope and they would gather in these churches and Dr. King and other people would speak and there was an energy and a power. And what sustained them for a year uh, of walking and people would yeah. get up and walk three miles to work in the morning and work 10, 12 hours and then walk three miles walk home back. at that. What would sustain them was this hope. And I think about the black people who would put on their Sunday best and they would go to places and they know hmm. they would be praying and get bloodied and beaten and battered. And I stand on their shoulders. They did so much more yes. with so much less. They didn't have mm -hmm. the protection that I have. They didn't have the resources that we have. And yet <clears throat> they had this hope. And so I want... Uh, to understand that hope. And what I realize is just as you described, they were in relationship with a belief, with a faith <clears throat> that persuaded them that even in the midst of that suffering, of that pushback, the bomb threats and mm -hmm. all of that, 
there was mm. peace. And I think hope yes. can lead us to a kind of peace <clears throat> that can be transformative. Um, <clears throat> and, and so for me, hope is that. It is mm. this It's the way we live. I will be hopeful. Uh, I pray to God yeah. every day of my life, yeah. for the rest yeah. of my life, even in the face of calamity and complex situations, hope becomes necessary because without hope, uh, we right. perish. We can't succeed. Right. We can't move forward. I have hopes right. for this nation. I want us to be, uh, I, I want us to, to get to something that feels more like freedom and equality and justice for all people. I have hope for my clients who are facing execution. I have hope for people who have been wrongly convicted. I have hope for people who have been unfairly condemned. I have hope for the poor and the neglected and the abused and the marginalized. I have hope for the disabled. And my hope is critical if mm. I'm going to make a difference in improving the lives of the people that I'm trying to serve. And so I do think hope is essential. It's essential yeah. to how we understand the world. And sometimes, Bishop, I think it's different than faith. Sometimes it's easier to repeat the liturgy and to go through the habits mm. of faithfulness, show up on Sundays, be in the right uh -huh. spaces, than to be hopeful. Because hope is a thing we yeah. have to carry outside of the places where it's comfortable and convenient. Hope is our resource when things are really uncomfortable and things are really inconvenient. And uh, that has certainly animated my life. But I've, I, I feel like I've, mm. I've learned that from the people who've come before me. I think about my grandmother who fled uh, Virginia uh, at the end of the 19th century, uh, early part of the 20th century, after the lynchings that were taking place there. Mm -hmm. And she married a man and she had 10 children. And I now realize that having 10 children uh, requires a lot of hope. You know, yeah. that yeah. despite the ugliness of and the bitterness of segregation in Jim Crow, she had enough hope that she could love her children enough right. They would be all right, that their humanity still mattered. And she gave that yeah. gift of love to each and every one of her children. My mom was the youngest of her 10 kids, and we grew up poor. But my mm. mom believed enough in love and hope that she had three of us. And, and I just think differently now about some yeah. of those things that she did. She, when we were kids, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. My mom went into debt to buy the World Book Encyclopedia. So we'd have a portal mm. to the world. My friends in the neighborhood, they got bikes and watches and basketballs and baseballs. We had the World Book Encyclopedia. Oh, oh yes. Whatever you can want. I understand that now as an act of yeah. hope. Uh, she wanted us to imagine a bigger world. And I would read those encyclopedias. Yes. That's how I learned about lawyers and law. I never met a lawyer until I got to Harvard Law School. I had to believe I could be something I'd never seen. Uh, but faith, uh, animated by hope, made that possible. So it's a great gift that we have. And uh, that's what's so powerful uh, about uh, Paul's experience when he's writing uh, in Romans. It, it, what's so powerful about it is that he, he, he teaches us that there can be peace in this fellowship of hope, this community yes. of hope, which is yes. what has sustained my work for sure. Well, you are like Paul. I mean, you you have gone back to Paul several times. Uh, you really have. Uh, you got a kindred spirit there. Because, you know, if you think about Paul, we know for sure that Philippians was written as one of the captivity epistles because he actually refers to the Praetorian Guard. He refers to being in chains and all of that. And Paul talks about joy and rejoicing more in Philippians than in any other any other the epistles that we've got. And here he's talking about hope, writing to the Romans, knowing he's going to the seat of the empire. Uh, if he's not already there, he may already be there. It's hard to know. But if he's not there, he's headed there and he knows he's headed there and he knows probably what awaits him. And he's talking about hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk about no, hope. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And, and, and it's it's interesting that we're talking much about Paul because I do I do identify with that story. And, and it's funny, that first time I went to death row and I left after that man had sung mm -hmm. for me and I was just, my mind was just racing. Oh, yeah. and, and it was then that I also thought about Paul. And I thought about not the apostle Paul, but Saul, the felon, uh, the one who had yeah. been arrested and condemned, the one that was threatened with death. And I thought about the fact that in our time, uh, Saul might not have mm -hmm. lived to be the Apostle Paul. We condemn so harshly. We execute so quickly. Right. 
Uh, and then I started thinking about, you know, Saul needed an advocate and you had to be prepared to represent the Saul so that the possibility of, of, of Saul becoming, getting to the Damas Damascus road is possible. And I think about that when I represent some of my clients who are so hated and rejected. Uh, they are being condemned for the mm. things they've done. You know, we have this fiction in our society that we can put crimes in prison. You can't put a crime in prison. You put a yeah. person in prison and people are not crimes. And I want for every one of my clients to have a chance to get to the Damascus, Damascus road, to yeah. have their encounter, to be transformed. But that means we have to stand up even for the Saul's who have been condemned. We have to create yes. opportunity and hope even for those who have fallen down. Uh, and that's why for me, there's no shame in standing up for the accused and fighting for the convicted. I, I talk about this in my book. I you know, I was doing some work in, in Louisiana and, and we were representing these kids who'd been sentenced to life without parole. We finally won a case that meant that those sentences would change. And it was so difficult, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, we, we got the court to rule that one of our clients who'd been in prison for 50 years for a crime he didn't commit, had gone there as a teenager, was going to be released. And the whole courtroom just applauded. Even the guys in, in jail who were waiting for their cases to be called started applauding. It was an wow. incredible moment. And I was just so lifted up by it. And I was leaving uh, and, and get, trying to get the papers read. And there was an older black woman. And she saw me. And she called me over. She said, hey, come, come here, come here, come here, come here. And she told me that her, her son, her grandson, had been murdered. And she'd come to court for the first time for the prosecution of the people who murdered her grandson. And she said it was so painful and difficult. And uh, then she said she kept coming back because she knew what it was like to be in that courtroom filled with worry. She said she'd start coming back and she would sit next to people who were struggling and she would just hold them. And she didn't just hold the people whose loved ones had been lost through some violent act. She would hold the people whose children were being prosecuted, who oh, were all yeah. thrown away. And she was telling me about that. And I was just sitting there listening to her. <clears throat> and then she said, I was in that courtroom. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing. And then she said to me, uh, I, I know you are a stone catcher too. And I didn't initially understand what she was talking about, but I had an instinct. And then we talked about it. And I remember the scripture where, where you know, Jesus, once again, uh, is brought uh, before the woman who's caught in adultery. And they want uh, to, to, to trap Jesus into a, uh -huh. into a response. And, and they quote the scriptures that say, what should happen to people caught in adultery, uh, they should be stoned to death. And, and, and Jesus is being so cool about it. He's just writing things in the ground. Yeah, He's being yeah. you know, very, and then yeah. he looks at them and he says, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and in my mind, I, I want to say he wow. was just giving them that look, right? He was giving them that, yeah, that look yeah. that let them know uh, that this is your <laughs> test, not hers, your test. Yeah, yeah stones down and they walked away. And I, I worry that in our contemporary society, we've become so acculturated in the habits of punishment. We've become so acculturated in the habits of condemnation. We've become so acculturated in believing that if we think we're right, we can do destructive things to other people. Right. That today, when we hear that scripture, people would still throw the stones. And what that yes. woman and I talked about in that courthouse is how mm. we can't just be uh, believers who understand that scripture, who quote that scripture, we talked about how the fact we have to become stone catchers. We can't yes. just stand by and watch the stones be cast. We have to position ourselves in front of the condemned and we have to catch mm -hmm. the stones. We have to actually carry the spirit of the Lord into these spaces uh, and be yeah. participants in this showing of mercy. And that's, uh, I, you know, I read the Gospels and, and, and that's to me what Christ is teaching us. And when I read Paul mm -hmm. and powerful letters that I, that's that's what I think he's teaching us and that's where the peace comes for me it comes in understanding that we have the power to do more uh, than, yes. than the hopeless will sometimes expect we can do you know the amazing thing I mean and you've done it again uh <laughs> you, you conjured up another image <laughs> because this Paul we keep forgetting he didn't start out as a stone catcher no that's he started right. out as a stone thrower he yes. consented the Acts of the Apostles to the death, the execution of Stephen, and they threw yes. stones at him at yes. Paul's behest. Yes. And he started out and he, he encountered that Christ, that Jesus on that Damascus road. Saul, right. Saul, 
why persecutest thou me? Why, why are you doing that to me? He said, I, would, I didn't do it to you. I did it to this dude named Stephen. He said, no, no, no. When you hurt one of my children, you, you're hurting me, Paul. And yeah. that, he, he lost sight. He lost the, a, world, a world view, an old way of looking at the world and life. And, and it was only when the, 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 the shit, and I started to say the shingles. I just had my shingles vaccine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The shingles of the things fell from his eyes that he started to see very differently. And the Paul who was the stone thrower became the Paul who was the stone catcher because yes. he had hope. He had yes. met a Jesus who gave, don't give up on anybody. That's what I hear you saying. Don't yeah. give up on anybody. That's right. No, it's, and it's, and we should all be energized and excited mm. That uh, even those who've fallen down, even those who have made mistakes, even those, you know, I, I, you know, this thing about we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. When I, if I make yeah. that an argument in court, people will try to push back on that. But I, I, I'm not just talking about my clients. I'm talking about everybody, all of us. Yes. I don't think if someone tells a lie, they're just a liar. I don't think if someone takes something, they're just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not yeah. just a killer. And justice requires. Mercy requires, hope requires, God requires that we understand the other things that people are before we judge them. Christ would not have appeared to uh, to Paul on the Damascus Road if he didn't understand he was more than that stone thrower. Yes. And, and yeah. that response created redemption. That's why for our nation, I am hopeful mm. that we have the courage to confront our history of racial inequality. Because we have done horrible yeah. things. We, we committed a genocide against indigenous people. We enslaved black people for two and a half centuries. We allowed thousands of black people to be lynched. We created a legal apartheid that segregated and humiliated and denigrated black families yeah. for decades. We've created these presumptions of dangerousness and guilt that still haunt and burden black people. But we are more than a more community than of people who enslaved, who lynched, yes. who segregated. And because of that, I still have this hope that yes. if we commit to truth telling, uh, if we commit yes. to repentance and acknowledgement, there will be redemption, that we will get to yes. that place. There is something better waiting for us. And that is the promise mm -hmm. that we are given. And the life of Paul animates that promise. The scriptures animate that prom promise. And, and we believers have a role to play in this. Uh, we've, yes. we've seen the stories. We've heard the stories. We know some things about God's grace and God's redemption. We've, we've yes. picked ourselves back up despite the times we've fallen. We've got to just share that with all the world. That's why I don't mind identifying as an evangelical. And it's a different kind mm -hmm. of identification for me. I want to share the vision that God has for all of humanity, that we can be redeemed, that no one is beyond yes. grace, no one is beyond no hope, one. no one is beyond uh, God's love. And uh, and and I, I've chosen to do that <laughs> among the condemned on death row, among those who've been convicted and sentenced, but there's actually been joy in that for me. Uh, mm. it, it gives me hope to believe that uh, that God's grace is sufficient for each and every one of us, that there is a way forward that light we were talking about is still shining brightly. And that is a great gift to me. It's a great and beautiful gift. And I'm grateful that there are people in the world like you who animate the scriptures and the gospels with such conviction and such depth and such clarity to help the world around mm. us see the power and the opportunity we have to be better people, be better humans, to be, to be better. better believers, yeah. to be contributors, to be stone catchers in a world yes. where or throwing stones. We can all be a stone catcher. You don't have to have a yeah. degree. You don't have to be uh, have nope. a, 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 a clerk's collar. You don't have to have a lawyer's nope. degree. You don't have to have any of those things. You just have to have a willing heart to stand up and in love your brothers and your sisters, to embrace those around you who are suffering and struggling, uh, to be with those who are in need. And that's the beautiful thing about this moment we're in. There are a lot of people in need, but there are a lot yeah. of us who can be stone catchers. You can be stone catchers. Oh, uh, that's like, uh, well, uh, what was Mr. Rogers' mama told him when he was a little boy? And bad things were happening. And he yeah. said, Mama, what, what, do, what do you do when you see all the bad things happen? And she, and, she, and she said, look for the helpers. Yeah. Look for the stone catchers. Yeah. There yeah. are stone catchers among us. And my yeah. brother, 
you are one of those stone catchers. Thank you. And you are showing us how to <laughs> catch the stones. <laughs> oh, thank you, oh, thank you. You are you are such a gift. Thank God for you. And well, you just I keep agree. on like old slaves used to say, walk together, children. Don't yes. you get weary. That's right. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. Yes, they, if they could say it then, yes. enslaved and in yes. chains, we yes. can say it now through a pandemic right. and whatever mm -hmm. befalls us. Absolutely. Be not dismayed, there be tied. Yeah. God take care. Yeah. What a privilege being with you. Thank you so oh. much for inviting me to do this. And thank you. And, and thank you, Bishop Kendrick and the good people of the Diocese of Central Gulf Coast. Um, thank you for bringing us together and have a great revival. A great revival. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Before we end this episode, take a moment and reflect on hope. What gives you hope today? How have hope and suffering informed each other in your life? Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. If you'd like to learn more about Brian Stevenson and his work with Equal Justice Initiative, visit eji.org. And as always, you can find more information and links to resources mentioned in this episode in our show notes. Thanks this week to Brian Stevenson, Bishop Curry, the Diocese of Central Gulf Coast, and Bishop Russell Kendrick, Ramon Valenzuela, Isabella Haskew, Megan Johnson, Hale King, Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sikama, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzer-Rands. I'm Sandy Millien, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world.